Welcome to the Digital Agency Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Englander. Today's episode is sponsored by our company, Sales Schema. Sales Schema is a fractional new business team for growth-focused ad agencies. And typically with most, most clients, we are starting with outreach and appointment setting. And when it comes to this sort of task, which is really important for keeping the pipeline full, regardless of however busy or not busy our clients are, there are a few things that make us different. The first is that we are agency specialized. We only work with agencies and marketing service companies. And that's important because marketing leaders are skeptical and the process that's necessary to get meetings for complex marketing services is different for almost any other B2B service or or product out there. The second thing is that we are individualized. Everything we create is bespoke and handcrafted so we can be tasteful and protect our clients' reputations. And the third thing is agile. And that means we think bigger and more creatively than simple outbound lead generation tactics. And we are constantly advancing our program to help our clients win. Since 2014, we've worked with more than 50 agencies of all stripes, conducted more than 7,000 individual campaigns, and generated more than 3,000 agency brand meetings. So if you'd like to learn more about what we're doing and see if we might be a fit for your needs, you can do that by going to saleschema.com and scheduling a consultation with us. So I have a question for you, and that's what do you think of when you think of content creation and content marketing for your clients? So by content, I generally generally mean the, the written word, but this could also mean video and, and long form content. I think if you are like most agencies out there, you might get a little, little knot in the pit of your stomach, maybe a little sp- stress springing up, and that's understandable because I think the content creation process can be really arduous, right? You know, you're you're dealing with needing to find the right people with subject matter expertise wherever they are, coordinating with clients on on complex issues, lots of different opinions, lots of different intersections of art and science, and it can be a really tough thing to get right. And for that reason, I think most agencies out there are sort of pushing the content into a line item and just sort of a something we have to deal with uh, dustbin, let's say. Today's guest is going to talk about why this is the wrong way to approach content and how it can be a huge opportunity and actually a huge profit center for a lot of agencies out there. And that guest is Steve Pacross. Steve is the CEO of Verblio, which according to their LinkedIn description is a multimedia content creation platform that powers modern modern content writers and SEO agencies. They have a curated network of a thousand US-based writers and subject matter experts in industries ranging from astrology to zoology and everything in between. And and more interestingly, they really built um, a a pretty robust UX and an easy-to-use platform that offers unique flexibility, quality, and speed to businesses and agencies seeking a reliable, trusted partner in developing content. So I really enjoyed this interview. I really, really uh, enjoyed learning about Steve's journey. Uh, and without further ado, please give it up for Steve Pacross. Steve, thanks for coming on the show, man. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. So maybe to start out with, I'd love to just hear about your experience kind of kind of running Verblio as the CEO and kind of how you got to this position. Sure. So uh, I took a pretty unique path to get here. I have been CEO of Verblio for four years. Uh, before then, I had a few different careers. My first career was in nonprofits. I had really dedicated, I thought I was going to dedicate my life to doing community development finance, which I thought was really cool. 
way of using some existing tools like finance to disrupt a whole new industry for the cause of good. And then I uh, graduated from business school in the 2002 recession, and I was told that I should find something new to do. And so I went out and I did that. And uh, my, I found my, uh, my first startup in 2004 was a marketplace startup that brought together a marketplace of 20,000 home-based call center agents, uh, cloud-based platform for the first contact center in the cloud before words like SaaS, marketplace, and cloud all existed uh, with a bunch of just a really powerful engineering and cool team of like a bunch of the original Netscape guys. And that company took off from like $8 million to $150 million. And I got to see if a couple of things. One is, how do you grow a really big concept that's disrupting an industry, which is very fun? Uh, and the second was all of the power of if you bring together a marketplace of great talent together with SaaS technology, the impact that you could have. Um, and so that is what I'm uh, excited to, to pursue here at Verblio. I bopped around the startup scene for about six, eight years, basically always trying to innovate new products, leading new divisions, turnarounds, and things like that. Uh, and was very excited when the founders of Verblio, who are both from Colorado, a journalist and a tech co-founder, uh, said after they'd been running the, the business for six years that they were ready for somebody to take this, uh, take this idea and scale it. And I I had a lot of dreams about what I wanted to do with a platform like this. And so I get the chance to live those out. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. And it sounds like you've, you've kind of focused on solving some, some pretty big problems in a lot of different areas. And what, what was it that you found compelling about solving this, this content problem or the interface between creating content and getting it out there to the right audiences and so on? The first thing I was excited about was it wasn't in call centers, which I was very ready to eat. Um, the second is, uh, it's at the intersection of the, the future of marketing of just how powerful modern content needs to be, or modern marketing needs to be. And it feels like it feels right. You're telling your own story. It's, it's almost got a philanthropic kind of your clients looking for you or looking to you to solve their problems. The better you get at content, the more you're solving your problems, the more engaging your content is, the more enjoyable the experience is going to be for them. And they look for you on at their own time when they're ready to engage you. And that has like a, just such, such a nice virtuous cycle that I was excited to be a part of that movement and figure out how to do it better. Uh, and the second piece is the future of work, which is I'm, I really want us to innovate on a new freelancer model that goes way beyond using skilled labor as commoditized widgets in the tech puzzle and push the tech world forward about how to engage people better and actually bring this talent into, um, into systems, which I think is going to be a much more powerful uh, work model for the future than what we've been able to do so far with the two models of kind of like the Uber model and the Upwork model are like the two that are out there. Uh, and I think there's something better. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And it's funny because we will bring in, you know, partners and, and new employees and stuff to help us uh, basically do, do new business for ad agencies. And I think there's always things that surprise them. You know, they're like, I've done this in this previous life, you know, I've done sales or whatever, and it's worked out well. And I can just bring this into this new area and it's going to be fine. And then they're like, Oh crap, things are different. You know, you, you, you zoom into any niche and there's just surprises and problems and stuff you've got to work through. So I'd love to learn about that a little bit. Like what, what's, surprised you and what was either harder or easier than you thought when you, in the first four years of, of, of running Verblio, basically? I think what surprised me the most was how similar the first round of challenges was to the exact same pro challenges that I'd seen at, at LiveOps 10 years before, which is the, what's great about having a marketplace model that's mixed with SaaS. So let's just take a step back. 
the concept of SaaS was that if you have deeper subject matter and expertise in one business process, and so starting with Salesforce, focused on the sales process, you understand it and build technology around it to make the people that are doing that process make their lives easier and engaging, um, that you can do this, you can really uh, completely change their lives and improve the experience of other options on the market. And so that started off with Salesforce and then it went into every work type and every niche. And now it's not just like, it's not just sales, it's every aspect of sales getting to that kind of real niche level that you were just talking about. Um, so I think that uh, the marketplace plus sales or plus SaaS is going to follow a similar model. Uh, and so we're going to start kind of trying to figure out where the expertise is with accounting, with um, with tech support, with QA, and uh, with marketing is most important. So the first thing that this model, again, what what marketplace systems enable is flexibility and scalability. You don't have to make a giant upfront investment. You can do a subscription service. You can use as much of it as you want. Uh, you have to learn the new system in order to bring it on, but it integrates really in, in quickly into your flow. And that's really interesting to solve some basic general problems. At LiveOps, what we did is we solved sales calls problems. If somebody is calling you on an inbound call and they're a hot prospect and they want to talk to you right then, if you don't answer that phone call, then you're going to drop that, that sale on the ground. Um, but if you want to staff your, your call center for 24-7 and make sure it's 100% availability, that's a really expensive thing to do. So using a marketplace to make sure a good sales agent was available at the time was pretty powerful. That is really where the industry of content marketplaces started, which was availability, scalability, consistency. We make sure it gets done. It's always there. Um, but just like call centers, the race soon became for quality. How do you actually uh, have a better quality piece, some subject matter expertise, better writing, more engaging writing, because every marketing channel gets more engaging. And so this really followed the path of LiveOps as well Is it was my job there as VP of business development and strategy to develop new business lines that were more focused on verticals, more higher quality, more specialized talent. Uh, and that's exactly what we're doing here. So that's the first surprise was, wow, I can't believe I actually get to relive history. There's a, a, I think Mark Twain has a quote, which is like, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And it's rhyming really well. Um, and yeah, I, I, lo I love that quote. And then there's, uh, I'm probably going to butcher it, but there, there's one that gets described to him that I actually learned isn't from him, but it's that, what is it that you, it ain't what you're worried about that hurts you. It's what you think is true, but just ain't so, or something to that effect. <laughs> so anyway, that, that came up recently. And I, I do really want to dig into the scale aspects and how you're looking for writers and, and all that good stuff. But as, as a little bit of a sidebar or a digression, I, I think that um, for, for entrepreneurs, there's often an attraction to build marketplaces. And I've always, I've always seen it as kind of a black belt business. Like you kind of have to work up an experience level to, to build a good marketplace because it seems like kind of a catch 22. You need buyers to have sellers, you need sellers to have buyers. And it takes, it takes some, some real thinking and effort and, and experience to build that. So I, first of all, I'd love to just hear if you, if you agree or disagree with that and why or why not. I completely agree with that. So, and I think one of the interesting the ways that we're approaching the business differently is I think most people think of marketplaces as the goal is to get the biggest supply of labor or the biggest supply of anything on both sides, as opposed to the most highly curated right size marketplace, which is what I'm really focusing on. Which So to give you an example, we had 10,000 writers when they came in. Uh, we took that down to 3,000 writers and the second year afterwards. I wanted to have a more quali high quality pool that was more high, highly qualified. Now we're down to 1,000 writers, which is very intentional. 
those writers have better career opportunities. They're more engaged. We get more control and quality out of the writers. And I think that's a really interesting twist on what most people think of marketplaces as opposed to like, it's not about getting as many people. It's about having the right number of people so that you have this breadth of talent, breadth of motivation and make sure that you still have the availability while giving yourself more control and higher quality out of that. And I think that's a, a big movement. Yeah, I'd love to dig into that more. So what did it take to to wean 10,000 down to 1,000? What what was the selection process like? So we accept about, so there's a few areas of it. So one is that the way that we curate our writer pool is first, we have a pretty stringent and tough upfront objective writing test. Do you know your skills top to bottom, which is uh, we accept 4.5% of writers that apply. So I wanted to be extremely stringent. One of the other marketplace concepts is this rating concept of, you know, you have a one-star writer, a 10-star writer, and that seemed insane to me. Why would you have writers that don't meet your quality level? So we basically just decided to have one level and you can choose which Verblio writers you like. Um, Once you make it through the objective level, I have a funny story of how I had to take the writing test after we rewrote it in order to do that, which was, uh, I, well, my mother and my brother and my wife are all professional writers. I am not. I'm the I'm the business guy. And so running a writing company has a lot of complexity to it. And there's a lot of pressure to be able to write well. And so I had to take my own writing test. And my my writing manager was sitting behind me as as I took it. And she says I passed it by one by one question, which I felt really good about and really proud. And then I thought, I think she would have said that no matter what happened. <laughs> Yeah, but it still seems like the the test is pretty useful, and I think that you brought up like a really compelling point, which is just like we we kind of just accept these star systems at face value, and and they're part of our lives, but they don't make a lot of sense. And I think there's there's a lot of data on this with Yelp, and it's like once a place is popular enough, it all kind of tends to hover towards four stars, you know, once it gets over a certain number of reviews and it's just no longer useful as opposed to a curated system where it's like, there's no stars, but if you want to make the list, you need to be good enough. So it's all positive. <laughs> and yeah, I think there's a lot to that. The new scale is like 4.75 to five stars. Those are like, that's the actual range of so 4.75 might be a failing grade. Right. And then at that point, what's the point? It's just going to keep getting fractalized down to, you know, meaninglessness. So that's, that's pretty interesting. So uh, running with the rest of the, uh, of the question. So the other, the, so the way that we evaluate our client, our, our writers is how our clients like their work. And so part of our inversion of the model is we think that choosing that finding a writer is actually a really challenging process. Most people have to go through and then they look at their background. They look at their profile. They'll look at their profile picture, which has inherent diversity, equity, inclusiveness issues uh, contained in it. So we inverted that model in a way that we think better aligns incentives, which is that our writers will choose the clients based on how they describe what they're looking for, their level of expertise and what their style is. And our writers will submit a full post and our client will have the choice of accepting that full post or not. And if you accept them, you can prefer that writer and put them into your team so that you have kind of your own custom team built out of this larger marketplace. Uh, And what I think that does is it gives a lot of incentive to the writer to make sure that they're picking you right to work hard for you. And then you're only evaluating writing based on writing as opposed to a person. Um, And so that does a couple of things. Uh, Our writers, basically, the more work that they get, it it naturally feeds on itself. They'll learn how to find uh, more clients and they'll get more work in our system. 
if they're not doing very well with clients and they're not getting selected, they leave and they kind of self-select out. And so there's kind of a natural meritocracy that occurs um, that is part of our kind of secret sauce. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's pretty compelling as opposed to commoditizing it and just having, you know, a star system or something like that. So that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I guess I'd love to, to learn more about, you know, the, the, the UI, the UX process, the interface in that, I think content just kind of makes a lot of um, agency accounts, people uh, get ulcers and groan. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of friction associated with it. I think there's a lot of people that think, you know, nobody's going to be able to do this out of house very well. There's a lot of pickiness. So I'd love to just hear how, how you've built the interface to, to get over those problems and how you're, how you're kind of dealing with that friction. Great. We think uh, UI is one of the, one of our, our key focuses and they're, yeah, any co-creation process is going to be filled inherently filled with friction. So our goal isn't to remove all friction; it's to minimize it and make it as enjoyable as we can. Um, so we have a pretty big tech team uh, and a very focused design and product team that thinks about the the, the content experience uh, as a whole. Um, I think the first thing we just covered, which was how do you find your writers, which is we made it a lot easier for you as, as an experience by taking out the friction of having to go select them for you. Um, the second piece is we basically kind of handheld our, our clients through the process of all of the right questions to ask and the information to share. So the goal of our platform is to, for you as the expert to download as much of that information as possible into the writers. The writer communication with the client process is where some of the most, uh, the deepest friction occurs. Um, and so the more of that, that we can structure the download of information into the hand of the expert, uh, and all the communication can be through the platform, the easier it can be. And we think the better quality, it really is important to guide your, your, your client on the right information to share. Um, so we, we focus on product improvements all the time. And we also believe that it is not a, a sprint. It's a, it is definitely a marathon as every single quarter has another round of, of UI improvements as our agency clients consistently uh, make recommendations of ways to improve. They're not shy. Yeah. And kind of digging into the agency aspect a bit, are there any big wins that you found where it's like, okay, if you, if you're able to set this expectation early or you have clients, you know, answer these questions at this point, this is going to cut out a lot of time, you know, later in the process. Is there anything like that that you've stumbled upon? Um, there are. So we did a big agency survey earlier this year with uh, over a hundred agencies about how they use content in the wild um, versus and what are their best practices versus kind of what the thought leaders are saying on the podcasts, uh, which we found really, you know, I get a courtside view, so I get to see what about 400 agencies are doing every month anyway, but hearing what the successful agencies do was really interesting. So we got a few quick facts here on what they're doing. One is a uh, First, only 25% of those agencies said that content was extremely successful for them, uh, which I thought was really illuminating because 95% of them said content was extremely important. Um, so it seems like there's a lot of figuring it out in the agency world and a lot of that frustration you were just talking about of like, this is just a necessary evil versus something that can be uh, enjoyable and done uh, done as well as they'd like. Um, the second was uh, about very successful agencies build the build content into their retainer plan. It is just part of their upfront fee. This is our package. It comes with it. The least successful agencies do it as an add-on or a line item afterwards. 90% um, of the successful agencies call it a profit center where they're just generating so much out of it that they, they want to sell more content uh, for hopefully for the right reason of it's doing good things for their clients, but it's also doing good things for them. 
Uh, 50% of them charge double what we charge them and 25% plus charge over double um, to their clients of the companies that our clients are doing it well. And I think agencies are just shy about charging for content. They think that, you know, their clients can go out to the market and see how much other writers cost and just uh, and discount it down and feel like there's a arbitrage there, but they're adding so much value to this. They're doing the content strategy that should be built into it. They're doing the editing, make sure it's uh, the, the content is achieving its goals. And I think you guys should be you know, strong about that. I, I think you should be charging double to triple the, the value for the value you're creating. Yeah, I would agree. And the idea of content becoming commoditized like milk or eggs is just as crazy as any other high level service being being commoditized. So that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I guess with, with that in mind, I, I'd love to dig into a little bit about what you've seen change in terms of what content's effective and, and how things have, have changed. Maybe starting with that. Yeah. Since you took over reverberably out what, like the way things have progressed. Well, there, uh, let's, let's talk about two rounds of trends. What, round one was a 2016 when I took over all the way until the crisis. And then everything that's been, been happening since I think is a deeply interesting trend. So the top, the number one trend that has occurred since 2016 is how much more focus there's been on long form content. And uh, we can all just define that differently. For me, it's basically a thousand words and above means you're, you're writing a more significant piece that can't be, that requires more effort. Uh, when I took over the company, less than 10% of our, the content that we created was a thousand words or above. Now it's over 70%. That's a pretty dramatic change of a marketing place in four years. And the reason that we're doing that is twofold. One is we're doing a lot more of it and we try to get better at it. And the second that our agencies are pushing us there because that's what they're seeing. Um, the second big trend was in video, uh, which is uh, just being more multimedia in your content. We acquired a video platform two years ago called Automagical that we use to lower the cost of video creation so that we can create a video with every blog post for 65 bucks in a way that makes it more uh, engaging. And you're trying to find a way not just to improve the quality of your content, but the engagement of your content has been become a really big deal. And the third big trend uh, is agencies asking, what, asking us for support on the professional services side. So we started this platform as a self-service platform uh, marketplace that we thought was a nice tool that did this one thing, content creation. Uh, and as agencies have become more competitive, they're focusing more on the top value that they can create and asking us to do more of the service to either do SEO optimization of all of the posts and then deliver it to their client CMS directly without them, all the way up to full account management where they're not even interacting with our pro with our platform. Now that's basically become 17, 18% of our business uh, and something that we didn't think we were doing because we are focused on digital agencies and didn't we thought that agencies generally have these teams that has only accelerated with the with the COVID crisis as everyone's trying to get more flexible. Yeah, and one thing that that I've observed, I'd love to hear if you how much you agree is that to to an extent, you know, everyone's kind of becoming an outsider because everybody's remote. So I think that there's some sacred cows being killed, and there's things that people might have thought they had, had would have to insource that they're rethinking. Is that how much would you agree or disagree? That's true. I, I definitely agree. I want to also make sure that I remember to hit on the trends post COVID too. But yeah. the thing I agree about the most is that, you know, what's the difference between a 10 hour a week contractor on your team consultant versus outsourcing any part of your business. It starts to like, 
it starts to become more incremental. And I think it really affects your mentality. And you think about who's my core, how do I rely on them? And then you think of your contract team as just part of your core as well. You're creating this ecosystem of full-time hires, consultants, contractors that are part of your core team, and then your extended specialists in this variety of areas. Um, I, I think it's only going to become more complex and start to look like a, a giant bubble screen on your, on your org chart as opposed to like the, the street drop-down lines. Yeah, exactly. And I guess that that bubble screen is going to become important because you're going to need to have a deeper bench to have enough people to to rely on at any given time because you might not be able to give them, you know, as much skin in the game as a W2 or something like that. So that makes a lot of sense. And so so I love those big trends. And I, I think one thing that uh, that I'm curious about is your thoughts on the walled gardens on these existing content traffic channels, whether it's medium or LinkedIn or whatever, how do you feel about those continuing to guide, you know, the, the way the content is built and their significance versus content that lives on some company's blog somewhere? I feel like you have to adjust. I think that if they are the game, you have to play the game. We don't get to choose the game. Um, so yeah, it's annoying that every time you put a, a link into LinkedIn, they basically completely block your post and nobody will ever see it again. Uh, but what they do is if you put video up there, they love video and they will share that with the world. Um, so we are all have our sacred cows of what we find. We, we all want to have beautiful ROI metrics. I produced this podcast and all of a sudden I made $55 would be a really lovely thing to see. Uh, Rand Fishkin had a post recently about the exact inverse correlation between how powerful a marketing channel is and how effective it is. I mean, sorry, how, and how hard it is to measure. And so I think that's totally true. So right now, uh, podcasting's taken off, video posts on LinkedIn are all taken off, and they're all really hard to measure your effectiveness uh, piece by piece, the same way that content has always been hard to measure piece by piece, as opposed to its effective whole. So uh, if you're saying, you know, am I happy that Facebook started charging for ad or charging ads and taking us off platform a few years ago, and LinkedIn seems to be moving in general directions, uh, I think our, our job as marketers is to see where the the, the best, if most effective opportunities are for the lowest cost and keep adapting and know that we have to keep adapting as part of the game. Yeah. And, and I guess with that in mind, you know, for your agency clients, are you typically writing content that's that's meant to live in one of these walled gardens, whether it's LinkedIn, Facebook, et cetera, or... You know, and with that in mind, are you are you writing or like with a particular tone or using particular tactics for those spaces typically? So, so the the thing I do like about most of these spaces is they seem to have a similar content oriented tone. So, if you're doing so, we we write only content, um, uh, doing content marketing as opposed to sales emails, as opposed to copywriting, all the things to try to catch eyes and catch the attention. Um, which I think is a very different vibe and would definitely fall into the, the challenges you have of, of distinct training. So most of our clients are are posting the same posts on their, on their website and their emails on LinkedIn uh, without really changing too much of the format right now. But I can definitely see that coming and we're going to have to be ready for it. Yeah. Interesting. And, and with that, um, you know, with the understanding that you're typically developing long form content, is there anything that you have found to make it sticky or anything that, you know, to basically create a follow-up experience for the reader, anything that people that might not be intuitive to, to the listeners? I don't think so. So 
the interesting thing is we create the content and we have less visibility into how our clients or our agency clients then use it afterwards without looking at every post and how they posted them. Uh, mm-hmm. We do hear back from them on the services they would like us to do, which is they've now asked us to post directly onto LinkedIn, which is a complicated mess of a process involving lots of authorizations and permissions. Um, but the, the main trends that we're seeing are video, which I referenced before, just doing something to make the, make your content pop. So visual content is becoming more important. Video is a big part of that, designing your content. So the layout where it's uh, pulling quotes forward, uh, putting in an infographic or more pictures, these are all things that we're, that we're working on and we provide some elements of, uh, of most of them. But something that making them stand out. Um, the other big trend is repurposing. Um, this is actually, I was, uh, I didn't quite finish the, the concept of the, the post-COVID kind of changes, but repurposing content and zero waste content has become a big trend, which is taking every piece of content and turning it into multiple uh, formats, uh, particularly turning podcasts, videos, interviews into written content to dramatically boost the amount of content that you have and just use every piece as much as you can, especially for people like myself who talk much better than I write so that this is the only way I can actually do content creation uh, is to start with the ver- with the, the verbal and move backwards. Um, but it's moving into, so part of it is repurposing to a different channel. Another is repurposing into micro content. So you do a video for 30 minutes, you take out the highlight videos that are one minute each, you post those on social media. Uh, and more and more people are considering this as a an asset portfolio of content. How do you reuse every piece of it and look at your entire content portfolio as a, as a strategy, which I think has only become more important. We're working on how to like offer those micro content packages in addition to the other ones where our, our podcast to, uh, to blog post product is becoming pretty popular. Yeah. And I'm selfishly very interested in that. I think we're doing most of that, but we're not converting video to text. So I'm wondering how valuable that would be either for search engines or for people that just don't want to sit sit down and look at my face and hear me talk for two hours or whatever. <laughs> people that want to skim, right? So that's something that is that, do you, do you find that to be effective for your clients converting video to text typically? So what we're finding, so, I mean, there's the, the transcription of the, all right, there's a, there's a few different versions of how to do this. You've got the transcription, you plug it into a system and it pops out words. And I've heard, I'm not the SEO expert, you guys are, but I've heard that that is not very effective. Uh, you have show notes, which I consider like 600 words or less, like we're doing for a lot of the big shows out there. I think those are just to support the show. People are looking for them. They're less SEO focused and more just engagement of trying to push the podcast more. The, the product that we're doing now is more like a 1200 word uh, enhanced summary that brings out the main points of every single episode. What were the main quotes? What were the main topics and a paragraph about each? So you can actually read it and get a really good feel of what happened on the podcast. Uh, all I can, I can say that they feel better when you read them. They feel much more engaging. And I, I think that that's going to be the next wave of how to actually get more juice out of your podcast. Very interesting. Yeah, definitely curious to learn more. Um, one one question I had that I guess was tied back to to the writer thing is what what are your thoughts on ghost writing? You know, is it do you think that it's still an effective or an important thing for for a client to be able to just kind of put their name or face on somebody else's writing, or do you think there's more utility in just kind of writers just being their util own utility players that can kind of kind of bounce between entities? Like, where where do you see that trend going? Uh, I think you should write with the own. Yeah. So most of our clients white label our service and then put their own name on it. 
Um, almost all of them. So we write 70,000 pieces of content per year, and I don't know very many of them where they use our writer's name. I actually don't know many of our writers that want to have their name used. Um, So I think ghostwriting is pretty prevalent. I think, you know, it really depends how you approach this is of the core values of your company and what you're trying to achieve on the marketing side. So um, my ghostwriter does 70% of every post that I write. uh, And then I do the other 30% because my tone is super important to me. Uh, I want it to have my voice, but I'll never get anywhere unless somebody writes the first 70%. I freak out if I see a blank cursor on a screen and I get apoplectic and lay on the floor. Um, so the ghostwriter for me gets it 70% done. If you don't care that much about your tone, you can get a heck of a lot done with 90% of just putting your your basic thoughts into the platform, having a writer pick it up and go with it. And if you're super gung-ho on that's got to be your voice all the time, um, you just set your expectations of how much you want out of it. Yeah. Uh, and then I think you should have somebody in your company that's like, even if like the lower level blogs, everything doesn't have to come from the top execs. Uh, just have your marketing person's name on it versus, you know, somebody who's related to your company. It's a, it's a point of pride. This is what you're standing for. Yeah, I think that's, that's really helpful. And I think that that's, that's a good expectation. And I think like when I've hired writers in the past, I just know I've been too picky when, if I come in with that 70% expectation, I probably would have been okay or else just get used to the blank page, you know, used to working through that. Yeah. Or, and maybe there are some pieces like that, you know, so I, I've been working on this new metaphor of like Toyota content versus Ferrari content Hmm. of like, you know, there's the stuff that you have to do consistently that gets you there that is a perfectly good car and it achieves its mission versus the Ferrari that everybody's going to stare at and it's going to get you all the attention on the internet. Maybe you have to either go to a, like a, you know, a super expensive high-end New York Times journalist type of writer for that Ferrari content or sit down and just power through it yourself. But the vast majority of content marketing is all this Toyota content, the consistency covering every topic that you're right, that your audience is looking for. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, and, and with that in mind, like how how important do you think subject matter expertise is in, in the writers you're hiring? That is a that is a super uh, important question. That is probably one of the most common ones out there. So the way that we think about it is that you have to have the right level of familiarity with subject matter. The and the client will always be the subject matter expert. So if you are looking to write about your diesel engine and you're looking for a diesel engine mechanic, who's also a professional journalist, you're going to be either struggling to find that person or paying a heck of a lot more for them. The way that we think we answer this is we divide segment all of our writers into 39 different verticals that they have experience writing for and that our clients have said that they're good at writing this. And so we have bucketed them into those areas. So if you come in financial services and tech, you'll have a writer who's generally familiar with those areas and have been proven to write it on before. And our point of view is that we were started by a journalist. And if a journalist can write an article for you, that's the level that they should be able to engage in subject matter expertise. And it's up to the client to put in the level of the subject matter expertise into the platform so that our writers can grab it and then write about it. Um, Because they're familiar with financial services, this will not be too hard of a leap to get there. Um, That is enough for most Toyota content. There are a lot of content out there like legal compliance expertise that requires a lawyer who is licensed in uh, licensed is that the right word? Uh, Probably not. Um, You know, in the state of Colorado where I am. And if you don't have that person, then you can't even put it out into the world or or an insurance writer who is actually a a compliant insurance agent. Um, So I think it's really important just to think about those different buckets in the same way we were talking about how much of it do you want to ghostwrite before? 
Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And kind of, kind of getting towards the end of the time, you, you've talked a bit about trends and kind of where things are at now. Where do you think things are going in, in the content world? Uh, I think they're going bigger, better, stronger. Um, I think I wrote a post a while back that was, that was called uh, content was King and then it got promoted. Uh, I truly believe that for a couple of reasons. One is all the virtuous benefits of content that most of you probably know. And, uh, HubSpot has written 50,000 pieces of unique content about how great that the importance of content is over the years. So I won't repeat those. The, the biggest trend here that's really happened and accelerated is the lack of other channels. Everything has become either harder to access. It's hard to get in front of a live audience. You can't do TV. Um, there's no need there. Well, you can, but there's no new TV programs coming out. Um, there's no conferences. All of the things that we were relying on before, outbound sales has become more challenging as it's harder to, to intrude. Content's there, like both because it's digital, it's easy access, it's easier to create, but it also like the benefits of having your audience X come to you when they're ready for it, it feels really right for this time. Um, so I think one content is going to keep getting bigger and better. The second is that it's going to keep getting harder. So a lot of the things that you asked me about today are exactly the trends that we're following too, which is uh, if everyone's doing it, it's going to become harder, which means you have to write either more or better or enhance it more or distribute it more or think about the channels that no one else is going to, how to promote it better with micro content. Uh, and it's going to become more of a necessity in every company. I think that there's going to be the content marketing lead as opposed to, you know, this is one tenth of what your marketing team is supposed to do. Yeah. And, and especially uh, in our world, I think one way to make it all easier is, is specialization and going after, you know, the, the Kevin Kelly sort of 110 true clients, 100 true customers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, how, how much do you think that dovetails with the way you think about your company and content and so on? Kind of the, the, the niche focus? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's exactly what I think. So I think there's the two big trends is we are seeing... We are building our, the, the, the core North star of our company is high quality content at scale for every niche. Uh, and we think about that every time we love niche content. We think that's the way that you're going to set yourself apart and we're trying to build it. So not just so you can find a few writers and do it, but also that you can start thinking as a marketer differently about content as a competitive advantage. So one of the other things we learned from our survey is the average number of pieces per month that our clients are, are that our agencies are doing for their clients. And about 50% of them are just doing the keep the lights on one to four pieces a month. 25% are doing five to 10. Maybe that's a little better and getting you noticed, but 25% of them are using 10 to hundred different pieces per month for their clients to get them really to stand out. Uh, and if you can get in there in your niche, which gives you a lot more ability to stand out and create more content than anybody else. You can create your own moat and uh, competitive advantage that could last for many years. Very cool. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. Steve, thank you so much. How could people get in touch with you? Uh, we, you can find me at uh, Steve at verblio.com. You can find me on LinkedIn uh, and then you can check out our podcast, the Verblio show, uh, which we do every week and to interview great marketers that we hope will inspire you. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks again, man. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Digital Agency Growth Podcast. Once again, our show is sponsored by our company, Sales Schema. Sales Schema is a fractional new business team for growth-focused marketing agencies. And if you'd like to learn more about what we're doing and see if we might be able to help out, you can do that by going to saleschema.com and scheduling a consultation with us. Look forward to catching you on the next episode.